We're continuing our series called Beyond in the book of Acts. And so if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to go ahead and open with me to Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. Acts 2, 14 through 41. And if you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like to use one provided for you by the church right there in the pew in front of you and right there in the back of the pew, you'll find one, the shorter dark brown book there, and you'll find this on page 771 or 811, depending on which printing of that you have, but it's Acts 2, 14 through 41. And we're continuing, as I said, our, our, our series through the book of Acts in a, uh, a series called Beyond, where we're considering what it looks like as a church to live beyond our Sunday gatherings. So beyond Sunday, beyond the walls and beyond the borders. Um, this is part two of a message I started last week. Well, sort of. Uh, last week, we, we visited this text very, very briefly. And um, coming back to it today in a, in a message I've called Basic Principles of Gospel Proclamation. Because as we consider that, the, a church that lives beyond our Sunday gatherings, a church that lives on mission, we're challenged by the notion that our mission is out there somewhere and not in here. So as the Great Commission in uh, Matthew 28 says, go and make disciples, not stay and make disciples. In Mark 16, Jesus said, go preach the gospel to all the world. In Acts 1.8, we read that Jesus told the disciples they would be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Peter said in 1 Peter 2.9 that God had made us, the church, a people for his own possession that we may, may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So when we go and when we preach, what do we say? What is the gospel what is the gospel? Last week, again, I started this with basic principles of gospel proclamation, really talking about um, some of the, the most basic surface level hows of that. The question uh, today is, what do we say? What is the gospel? And in Acts 2, 14 through 41, Peter preaches a sermon um, that goes a long way toward answering that question and sets a good example for us to follow as well. So let's look there now. In Acts 2, 14 through 41, if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, beginning in verse 14, hear the word of the Lord. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. 
The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, as always, it is our delight to come together as your people, a privilege to enter your presence, ready to hear what you have to say to us. Lord, our worship is to you, but we know that we are so blessed uh, through it, by you. And so it is that in reading and preaching your word, your voice is heard. And so, Lord, with ears and hearts ready to receive, we pray that you would speak, O oh Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory and for our good, in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. 
in, in part one of this message last week, I just, as I said, skimmed the surface of the text and we noticed three principles of basic, uh, or basic principles of, of uh, proclaiming the gospel. And they were, if you were here, you may remember, be bold, use words, and connect the dots. And I made the statement that the gospel is good news, not a good example that the gospel as good news has to be spoken in words. There are things we must say. And while our example is absolutely important, that we, that we conduct ourselves in a manner that is gracious and winsome and uh, kind and patient and forbearing and all of those kind of things is not only fitting, but just necessary. In fact, Paul said in his uh, letter to the Philippians, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. We ought to live in a manner that reflects consistently with what it is we preach, but make no mistake about it. The gospel must be preached in words. So I said the gospel is not, or the gospel is good news, not a good example. And from a closer look at this passage, I would go on to say that the gospel is good news, not good advice. Or to take it a step further, the gospel is good news of what God has done, not good advice about what you should do. And to fill it out uh, even more completely, if you're taking notes, here's the definition, and I borrow heavily here from uh, Sam Storms, but I'll say the gospel is good news of what God has done through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in securing the forgiveness of sins for all who would repent and believe in him. I'll say that uh, one more time in case you're writing. Uh, the gospel is good news of what God has done through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in securing the forgiveness of sins for all who would repent and believe in him. So if everything else I say this morning is confusing. And that is possible, by the way. I am capable of confusing things that are otherwise quite, quite clear. Hopefully we'll leave at least with a clear definition of what the gospel is. Because until we have told people of God's accomplishment, what he has done, and until we've told them of Christ's resurrection, and until we've told them of sin's forgiveness, we haven't fully communicated the gospel. And we're talking about living on mission, building relationships, starting conversations with people, with, which hopefully are going to unfold over a period of time. It's not like we expect necessarily to go through our gospel outline with the person standing behind us in the line at the coffee shop or whatever and want them to make a profession of faith in Jesus before their latte is finished. I mean, that's not uh, that's not necessarily the goal, although that would be a wonderful thing if it happened that way. But we're anticipating more, beginning conversations people, with people, developing relationships with people that, that hopefully, ultimately will lead to opportunities for us to share the gospel. And if we're going to do that, we have to know what the gospel is. It's good news of what God has done through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and securing forgiveness of sins. And so let's notice here in this passage that, that the gospel, that in the gospel, rather, God 
fulfills his promises and God forgives his people. Let's look first at the fact that God fulfills his promises. And I'm actually uh, going to sort of zoom us out from Acts uh, uh, 2 and let's ascend up to maybe the, the 30,000 foot altitude or something. We're going to do a really high flyover of the Old Testament. Um, because when we say God fulfills his promises, it's helpful um, to have a really high level view of how his promises unfold throughout the New Testament. And we, when we look at that 30,000 foot flyover, we see that God throughout the Bible relates to mankind through a succession of covenants. Okay, so since the fall of man, which came about uh, through the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, God has made a covenant of grace with mankind. Uh, that is, in the immediate aftermath, in the immediate aftermath of their sin, God said that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That's in, in Genesis three fifteen, And it's a promise of the gospel. That is, that, that God determined that by his sovereign grace, he would redeem what was lost. He would bring it to pass. And then he made a series of covenants throughout the Old Testament with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses and David. And each covenant built upon the previous ones and found ultimate fulfillment in the new covenant in Christ. Now, don't drift off to sleep and don't get lost. We're just flying over at 30,000 feet here, okay? But, but when, we, when we begin to see that, we notice uh, even from mentions in places like Galatians 3 and Romans 4, for example, that the faith of Abraham that was credited to him as righteousness pointed to the faith that believers have in Christ, whereby his righteousness is credited to us. We see that circumcision as a sign of that covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, is mirrored by baptism as the sign of the new covenant. We see that the law of Moses written on tablets points to the law that would be written on hearts under the new covenant. We see that sacrifices under the uh, law of Moses, sacrifices that were required whereby the blood of bulls and goats is offered repeatedly, for the covering of sin, pointed to the sacrifice of Christ, whose blood was shed once for all for the remission of sin. And David, who was seated on the throne as king of the kingdom of Israel, pointed to Christ, the descendant of David, the promised descendant of David, who would sit on the throne of a heavenly kingdom forever. Now, so to summarize that, since the fall in the garden, God is related to mankind in a succession of covenants through which he, by his sovereign grace, accomplishes in Christ the redemption of all that was lost through the sin of man. The Old Testament is an unfolding story that all points to Jesus Christ, and he promises that it will be so. And so through prophets, 
God makes predictions in keeping with those promises. In other words, prophecies are not just sort of random predictions scattered throughout the Bible to make it interesting or something, or uh, so that we can look back later and say, oh, look, he foretold this was going to happen. The prophecies, the predictions are in keeping with the promises he's already made that he will bring to pass what he determined to bring to pass, that he will save that which was lost. And so as we zoom back in now to Acts chapter two, uh, that reference to the to Old Testament prophecies or two, two, uh, old ref, two references here to Old Testament prophecies explain what is transpiring. So if you look in verses 14, through 21, there in Acts 2, if you just sort of scan through there, Peter says, these people are not drunk. If you'll recall, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues. People are hearing um, these praises to God in their own languages. And some go, some are asking, what does that mean? And others are saying, these are people are drunk. He said, they're not drunk. This is only nine o'clock in the morning. This is what Joel said would happen. And what is that? He said, well, God will pour out his spirit on all flesh Dreams, visions, and prophecies would be given to male and female, young and old, and even servants. He said signs and wonders would occur and that all who call on the name of the Lord would be saved. And then Peter goes on in verse 22 to say, hey, speaking of signs and wonders and miracles, Jesus did plenty of them in your midst, as you yourselves know. You witnessed them. And as the greatest miracle of all, God raised Jesus from the dead because the grave couldn't hold him, just like Jesus said would happen, or rather just like David said would uh, happen. That would be true of the Messiah. And then in verses 25 through 28 there, if you'll notice again, there's this other citation from the Old Testament here uh, from David in the Psalms in which he says the Messiah would not see corruption. And then let's look at verses 30 and 31. He says, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So Peter links the resurrection of Christ Um, to the promise that God would place David's descendant on the throne forever. Now, the the, the point I'm developing here, well, actually, the point that Peter developed, (laughs) the point I'm trying to explain about what Peter developed is that this is a work that God has done. That the gospel is good news about what God has done and he fulfills his promises. And so with that backdrop, of an understanding of, of God's covenant promises throughout the Old Testament and these references to uh, these two prophecies here, we have some light shed upon several statements about God's initiative in salvation that are right here in the text. So look in verse 22. We're looking at the things that God did. Verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. Verse 23, this Jesus 
delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now let's notice there that, that, that here is a very clear statement of God's sovereignty and human responsibility coexisting. I don't know if you've ever been struck by this statement before, but here's the question. What brought about the crucifixion of Jesus? Now, what does it say there in verse 23? It's the definite plan of God carried out by the hands of lawless men who killed him. They were entirely guilty in and of themselves of their lawlessness. They were entirely guilty of the wicked act of killing the Lord of glory. And yet in committing that egregious sin, they carried out the plan of God to provide forgiveness even of that egregious sin. I don't know if you, do you follow the irony of that? That they in their wickedness, in their lawlessness, committed the most heinous sin and in doing so brought about the plan of God to provide forgiveness for even that sin. That's staggering. Who would have made that up? <laughs> That's got to be an inspired story. Who would have written it that way? And so we continue noticing the things that God did here in bringing about the work of salvation in Christ. Verse 24 says of Jesus, God raised him up. We jump down to verse 32. We see something similar. This Jesus, God raised up. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and, uh, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And verse 36 let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The gospel is good news about what God has done, not good advice about what you should do. He takes initiative in salvation because he's a God who fulfills his promise. And listen, we know something. We know something about being given and heeding good advice when we've done things wrong, right? I, like I, I can remember um, as a kid doing things like uh, throwing the ball in the house and breaking a lamp or something like that, hypothetically. <laughs> and the other kids, of course, that you're playing with begin to give you advice about what to do. It usually doesn't include confessing. <laughs> Turn the broken part of the lamp around facing the wall. They'll never notice. Hide the lamp. They'll never notice it's gone. Replace the lamp with another lamp. Or blame it on your cousin. Uh, that was always a go-to for me. But we, we know something about receiving good advice or even people maybe who, who go to court and maybe go to court knowing they're guilty and their attorney says, okay, uh, get a haircut, shave, 
put on a suit. Oh, you don't have a suit? Go buy a suit, then put it on, right? Go dress up, cover up, look nice so that they might find you not guilty, but you know you're guilty. In other words, we understand this about being given good advice in light of the things that we're, we're guilty of, the light of the things that we've done that we're guilty of. The gospel is not good advice about what you should do to clean yourself up. It is good news about what God has done in spite of what you have done, in spite of what you do, in spite of what you will do. Good news of what God has done. Well, number two, God forgives his people. God not only fulfills his promises, God forgives his people. Look at verse 37. It says, now when they heard this, that is when they heard um, that this Jesus, God has made Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, they realized they've killed the Messiah. And they said, when, now when they heard this in verse 37, they were cut to the heart and said, Peter, said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Now, as I said, we can imagine in any other telling of this story, in, in, in any, any um, poet, author, you know, novelist, playwright, or anybody who wrote this story as a work of fiction, we would expect that right here would be inserted a strong statement of justice. And the, and the way this story is unfolded is that an innocent man had been put to death by wicked men. He had come to save him and they had killed him. And then when it looked like evil would prevail, that innocent man had been raised from the dead. His betrayer had committed suicide. And now the crowd that put him to death has been confronted with incontrovertible evidence of their guilt. And they ask, what shall we do? Well, we can imagine the version of the story in which Peter replies, there's nothing you can do. You made your choice. Now you're going to get what's coming to you. You'll just have to wait and receive the judgment the penalty of your actions. And there's something of a sense of justice and even vengeance in the heart of man that would want it to be written that way, right? If that was the next line in the movie theater, everybody in the theater would be clapping. Yeah, give them what's coming to them. But look in verse 38 and 39 at what Peter actually says in response to this question. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, b- before I sort of address this, the bigger issue here of, of grace versus justice in this answer, uh, I just want to sort of touch uh, a, a couple of issues related to, to baptism, as it mentions here, uh, and, and so that, because they're the kind of questions that people, it raises in people's minds, worthy of further study. We'll not do it here um, right now, but uh, lest anybody be confused. First of all, baptism doesn't save 
people. So whereas here it says, repent and be baptized, in Mark 1.15, it says, repent and believe the gospel. In Acts 16.31, it just says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And so baptism is a sign and seal of the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit uh, in the forgiveness of sins. And while it is closely associated with our faith or profession of faith, baptism itself doesn't save. And that's the clear teaching and consistent teaching of the New Testament. And if you study elsewhere, and by the way, that's just one of the principles of interpreting the Bible is we allow the Bible to inter- interpret the Bible. Uh, we we inter- interpret uh, obscure, more obscure or difficult passages in light of uh, the whole of scripture and the clearer passage. And so the clear and consistent teaching of Scripture is that baptism doesn't save. It is the faith associated with baptism uh, that justifies. And second, I'll just mention in the briefest of way of ways um, that there in verse 39, where it says the promise is for you and for your children. As I said, we don't have time to treat this thoroughly, but I do just want to reach out and touch it as we're passing by. Um, that there there is a connection that we see between. The, the Abrahamic covenant I mentioned earlier and circumcision as the sign of that covenant and then the new covenant and baptism as the sign of the new covenant. And whereas circumcision um, was uh, given, applied or whatever to adults and their children, So baptism for those of us, those churches like ours in the Presbyterian, like those in the Methodist, Episcopalian, Lutheran, and tradition throughout most of the history of the church who practice infant baptism, this would be one of the places we look for biblical or that we find biblical warrant for that. That uh, the, the sign of the new covenant is administered to adult believers and to their children As it says here, the promise is for you and for your children. Now, I said just enough to start a fight right there. And uh, so, uh, again, the point there not to uh, try to convince you of that, but simply as we're passing by um, that you uh, at least see reference to or get a glimpse of why we find biblical warrant for that. And so uh, hopefully it uh, sheds a little bit of light on that. But anyway, let's turn our attention back to the the larger subject of, of justice and grace. Because in response to the question, what shall we do? Peter doesn't say there's nothing you can do except receive your penalty. He doesn't even say repent and you won't receive your penalty. He says, repent and you'll receive a gift. Look at verse 38, because it's unbelievable, isn't it? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. To the very people who killed the Son of God. And that that is what's so outrageously good about the good news. I mean, that is shockingly good. And so maybe there's someone here today who's not a follower of Christ and, and, and you've just assumed you've done too much or you've gone too far. You've done too many bad things or just things that are too bad. 
friend, what, what have you done? I mean, really, I don't want to trivialize your sin or anybody else's sin, and I don't want to minimize the burden that you might feel from it. And, and in fact, that burden is, is supposed to drive us to Christ. But really, what do you think you've done that would even begin to compare with this? I mean, even if you have murdered somebody, you couldn't murder anybody or any number of bodies that would, that would equate to killing the Son of God. And they didn't even have to wait. It wasn't like they had to spend some time in purgatory paying for that egregious sin or do penance, you know, picking up trash on the side of the road or something. 50 days later, here they are saying, what shall we do? And he says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is freely offered even to the people who killed the Son of God and for any who will change their heart and mind, turn from their sin and believe in him. The same gift is available. And for that person, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. And that is the gospel. That is good news, isn't it? If that doesn't sound like good news, if that doesn't strike you as good news, I didn't say it right at all. Because it is just amazingly good. And you know, not only those who have not yet believed, but even those who have professed faith, we still live by the gospel. We still live by the grace of God. That even, uh, that even when we sin and fall and fail, God cannot fail. God cannot be anything other than faithful. And that song, Reckless Love, that we sang, it just about wrecks me every time we sing it um, because of a, of a God who chases me down. I know something of that story. I still give him something to chase every once in a while. <laughs> and we live by the grace of the gospel. And friend, if you, if you are here today and you have never made a decision to follow Christ, um, I would invite you to do that today. Make today the day of your salvation. Perhaps he's pursued you to bring you here. May, perhaps he, he has allowed you to carry the weight of your sin to the point that your, your knees almost buckle under the weight. And as it brings you to your knees, there you find him ready to receive and ready to forgive. And let's pray together. Lord, we thank you, thank you, thank you for the good news of what you have done through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in securing forgiveness of sins for the likes of me who was only called to repent and believe the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for your immeasurable grace, your unspeakably 
amazing and wonderful grace. And Lord, I pray that you would um, just shine new light on the significance of that, even for people who have believed for a long time. Lord, would you just stir up in them a fresh understanding and appreciation for what's been given to us in the gospel and a fresh love and gratitude for you because you set that love upon us. And Lord, I do pray for any sitting here today within the sound of my voice, Lord, I pray that you would remove the scales from their eyes that has blinded them from see, for seeing you for who you really are, that has darkened their heart from understanding the truth. Lord, I pray that you would uh, just bring them to life spiritually and to run to Jesus. We thank you that you are still saving people. We thank you that you have allowed our church to continue to be a part of that, Lord. Would you inspire and motivate and equip us to take that message with us wherever we go, to be bold and to use those words to be willing to walk all the way through it with people, to lead them to the great grace of Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen.